Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Kathy Hochul and state lawmakers gave up this week on the chance of meeting the state's April 1st budget deadline when final agreements on the spending plan and related items failed to emerge in time. The Senate and Assembly adjourned until Monday when they say they will try again to reach an accord. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. The next hard deadline for the state budget to be in place is Monday afternoon. That's when the state controller needs to process payroll for 62,000 employees who work at state-run hospitals, prisons, and other institutional settings. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stork-Cousins says she's hopeful that the budget can be done by then. We're going to have a timely budget because we are making progress. The biggest sticking point has been whether to include revisions to bail reform in the budget and make other changes to the landmark 2019 criminal justice reform laws. Hochul, under pressure from political opponents who've been accusing her of being soft on crime, outlined 10 changes that she would like to make. They include adding more gun-related crimes to the list of felonies that would once again be bail eligible and making it easier to mandate that a mentally ill person be hospitalized or receive outpatient treatment, as well as adding more money for mental health services. Stuart Cousins and Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, who championed the laws, have been resistant to making changes. They say there's no hard data linking the reforms to the rising crime rate. But the Senate leader says some of Hochul's suggested changes are likely to be adopted by the legislature. We are trying to deal with making sure that people are safe and that we create a, a, you know, a public safety environment without criminalizing poverty. The governor and lawmakers are still talking about restructuring the state's Troubled Ethics Commission, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, or JCOP. Government watchdogs, including Blair Horner with the New York Public Interest Research Group, warn, though, that a plan currently under consideration would not be an improvement because the governor and legislature would continue to appoint the members. It's a structure that is designed to fail. The only way these ethics agencies work is if they're independent. And criticism continues over the deal struck Monday between Hochul and the owners of the Buffalo Bills football team. That agreement would require at least $850 million of public money. Some lawmakers and Hochul's political opponents say it's too big a giveaway to the wealthy owners of a lucrative sports franchise. Proposals including a gas tax holiday and allowing restaurants to serve alcoholic drinks along with takeout food are still on the negotiating table. The Senate stands adjourned until Monday, April 4th at 3 p.m. Not everyone planned on leaving the Capitol for a long weekend, though. New Yorkers with disabilities and their allies plan to camp out in a lobby outside the governor's office to advocate for more pay for home health care aides. The proposal backed in the legislature would require that home care workers receive at least one and a half times the minimum wage. Senator Jessica Ramos, a Democrat, was among several lawmakers who spoke. I've been heartbroken to know that the Senate and the Assembly has been sent home. We were told to go home. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk to us. We've done what we can in putting forth a one-house budget 
that does account for the most vulnerable in our society. That is our job. We've been doing our job. We need the governor to do her job. Governor Hochul did not appear in public for the sixth day in a row amid reports that some of her top staff have tested positive for COVID-19 and are working remotely. A spokeswoman says anyone who tested positive is isolating and that the governor has continued to test negative. Hochul, in a statement, says she is continuing to have productive conversations with legislative leaders and will put in the time that it takes to reach an agreement. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, the judge has ordered New York's Democratic-controlled legislature to redraw the state's congressional and legislative districts after finding them unconstitutional this week, Alan. Judge Patrick McAllister said in a Thursday ruling that maps redrawing the state's congressional districts were gerrymandered to benefit Democrats. McAllister, a state trial court judge, said those districts must be redrawn, along with the legislative districts in a way that attracted at least some bipartisan support. The judge gave lawmakers until April 11th to try again. If their new maps fail to pass muster in the courts again, the judge said he would order the state to pay for a court-approved expert to redraw the maps. Now, the state is appealing the decision, which triggers an automatic stay until the state appeals court takes it up. But I imagine they'll move quickly. Let me just say that New York has always been a state which has been gerrymandered. Once the assembly went Democratic, they did their job and drew districts where they could win. And the Senate, while it was Republican, and until they had no choice, was gerrymandered as Republicans. That's why the Senate was Republican. Then, when there just got to be too many Democratic voters, that kind of gerrymander was not possible, and both houses went to the Democrats. So now we have the legislature in control of the Democrats, and guess what? Whoopee! They gerrymander in their own favor, just like in other states, Republicans do that. So now if a judge says, look, you can't do this because it's just so manipulative and it is such a wicked gerrymander, you can't do it. And if you don't do it, either I'll do it or I'll find somebody else to do it fairly. Meanwhile, in other states, there's Republican gerrymandering like crazy. And the idea is you can't do it in New York, but you can do it in other places. Oh, come on. This is ridiculous. So what we have is a clear wish on the part of the people of New York, they've so expressed themselves, not to have a gerrymander. And yet you do. And a judge comes along and says, you can't do this. And I'm going to make sure you don't do it. It's complicated, very complicated, because in some states, the gerrymander is clear. In New York State, they say nothing doing. Now, when you add up all the congressional seats, for example, that means, in my opinion, the Republicans will have an advantage. Let's talk judge shopping here for a minute, Alan. The judge, State Supreme Court Judge Patrick McAllister, is from where? Steuben County. We know it's conservative, and we know how a lot of this works in politics. You look for the right judge. 
That's right. Judge shopping is something that a very good lawyer knows how to do and will do. Now, obviously, as it goes further up the line, as appeals are made, you can do away with some of that. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But in fact, New York is a Democratic state, and it has a lot of Democratic judges. And so if you're going to judge shop, you look for the right places to make your appeals. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartoff. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is renewing efforts to bring banking services to U.S. post office branches. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. For years, New York Democrat Kirsten Gillibrand has been pushing for legislation to bring basic banking services to your local post office. In a virtual press conference Wednesday, Gillibrand said her bill would benefit Americans in lower-income rural and urban areas, and she says it's not even a new idea. U.S. Postal Service offered postal banking from 1911 to 1967, and it helped millions of families through the Great Depression and two world wars. It was America's most successful experiment in financial inclusion. Now, as our country and the Postal Service are recovering from the immense financial burden of an unprecedented pandemic. This legislation will help us build the foundation for a better, brighter future. Gillibrand's latest version of the bill announced Wednesday with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders would allow people to set up basic checking and savings accounts and receive small loans up to $1,000 at the post office. Gillibrand says the program would pay for itself. So I think to the extent you need more personnel, it can be funded through the $19 billion in revenue that you would create by establishing this program. So you could build up and right-size your personnel based on how many people decide to use it. Last year, the USPS began a pilot program at four locations, including one in the Bronx. But there's been limited data on the program. Reached by WAMC, a USPS spokesperson did not offer specifics about how many people have utilized the program, saying the data is proprietary, or if it considers the pilot viable. A statement reads in part, quote, Customers at these locations can purchase a single-use gift card of up to $500 using their business or payroll check as payment. Checks larger than $500 will not be accepted and no cash will be dispersed. This pilot, which is in collaboration with the American Postal Workers Union, is an example of how the Postal Service is leveraging its vast retail footprint and resources to innovate, end quote. But Gillibrand has been skeptical and says a $5 fee for utilizing the program is unfair to those who need it most. The USPS considers the fee industry standard. It was very disappointing um, how he put that into place, but I think that can be improved upon. I don't think you should have to pay any money to access your money. The Democrat has been open about her disapproval of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, an appointee of former President Trump. He's terrible. I don't support him. I hope we can get a new Postmaster General sooner than later. In the city of Albany, neighborhood groups have been advocating for the establishment of a permanent post office branch in the Pine Hills neighborhood since the closure of a location on New Scotland Avenue. Zach Simpson, chair of the Council of Albany Neighborhood Association, says a temporary post office location on Ontario Street has seen less traffic than the previous location. Simpson says adding banking could help retain and bring in new postal customers. Give it a try, assess it, see if it's helping you know, increase business, increase options. Um, 
And really, you know, the United States Post Office, if this does happen, should, you know, make sure they engage with the community, make sure, you know, they are doing everything they can to give the services that we want, you know, at the post office. So far, Gillibrand's bill is not bipartisan. I'm going to find the Republicans in the next couple of weeks. And when I do, that increases our chance, obviously, of getting a vote in this Congress and getting it by the end of the year. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. With the Democratic primary three months away, a Siena College Research Institute poll finds New York Governor Kathy Hochul with a significant lead over her two opponents. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with a detailed look. Siena's Steve Greenberg says in a three-way Democratic gubernatorial primary, Hochul has a commanding 40-point lead over both New York City public advocate Jumani Williams and Long Island Congressman Tom Suozzi among registered New York Democrats. Hochul currently has the support of 52% of Democrats compared to 12% for Williams and 11% for Suozzi. She has a commanding lead no matter how you look at it. She leads by 29 points in New York City, 28 points in the downstate suburbs, and 56 points upstate. Greenberg says there's a wild card in the mix. If, however, Andrew Cuomo, the former governor, decides to file petitions to run in the Democratic primary in the next 10 days, the race is much closer. Hochul leads, but she only has the support of 38% of registered Democrats compared to 30% for Andrew Cuomo, 10% for Tom Suozzi, and 7% for Jamani Williams. Cuomo and Hochul are tied in New York City, where most Democratic primary voters come from. Hochul leads by eight points in the downstate suburbs, and she has a commanding 25-point lead upstate. Cuomo has a two-to-one lead with Black voters, Hochul has a two-to-one lead with white voters. Greenberg says despite all that, Cuomo would be a player if he decides to run against his former number two. According to the poll, when voters were asked what Cuomo should do, 18% said run in the Democratic primary, 10% said run as an independent in November, and 67% said do not run for governor in 2022. Among Democrats, 33% say run in the primary, 8% say run as an independent, and 54% of Democrats say don't run. Meantime, the poll also asked about a key issue in Hochul's first budget. A majority told Siena the 2019 bail reforms have been bad for New York. Hochul, who has proposed a 10-point plan to change the bail reform law, broke her silence on the issue late last week, telling reporters criticism from both sides of the political spectrum means she's hit the correct balance. I think that's the sign that you're in the right place. Greenberg says just 30 percent of New Yorkers think the bail law has been good for the state. Compared to 56 percent who think the bail law has not been good for New York. Nearly two-thirds of New Yorkers say the bail law has resulted in an increase in crime. And an overwhelming majority of New Yorkers, including at least 72% of voters from every party, every region, every race, say the law should be amended to give judges more discretion to set bail for dangerous crimes 
based on the danger of the crime and the record of the individual arrested. Greenberg notes that at the same time, 56% of New Yorkers are at least somewhat concerned that giving judicial discretion on bail could result in the unjust incarceration of poor people and people of color. So a majority of voters believe that the bail reform law has been bad for New York and has led to an increase in crime. There's near universal agreement that the bail law should be amended to give judicial discretion, while at the same time, a majority are concerned that providing discretion could lead to unjust incarceration. The survey finds 84% of Republicans think bail reform has been bad for New York, as do at least 60% of independents, voters outside New York City, white and older voters. A plurality of Democrats, 46 to 38 percent, and a majority of young voters think the law has been good for the state. Black and Latino voters are closely divided, tilting toward bad. There's more at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Governor Kathy Hochul is heralding a deal to keep the Buffalo Bills in New York after months of talks. Democrat says a new $1.4 billion stadium in Orchard Park will be largely paid for by taxpayers. Under the agreement, the National Football League and the Bills will contribute a combined $550 million, while Hochul wants to add $600 million in state funding for the project. Erie County will contribute $250 million in a deal Hochul says locks the bills in for another 30 years. While fans are no doubt thrilled to keep Josh Allen and company around for future Super Bowl campaigns, debate over the timing of the agreement with the new state budget and the wisdom of it is being questioned. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pick has spoke with Roger Knoll, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Stanford, at Stanford about public investment in sports stadiums. That's the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickett speaking with Roger Knoll, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Stanford. Well, it sets the new indoor record. Uh, Buffalo will move past Las Vegas as the city that has given the most money to a billionaire owner to build a stadium. And uh, it reflects a reality that that, uh, the people who live in Buffalo and the people who live in New York in general, and certainly the political leaders like the governor, are caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, uh, on the one hand, we know that the rosy financial projections about how it will pay for itself with new tax revenues, we know that's not true from decades of research. There's literally no support for that concept in any economics research that's ever been done. On the other hand, the uh, underlying reality is that the NFL is a monopoly that has fewer teams than there are cities that want them, so it's a difficult situation to be in if you're a politician, and it's a difficult position to be in if you're a New York voter. Why don't stadiums generate enough revenue for municipalities and states to justify the investment? Because the almost everybody who attends a game 
is local. They live in the same metropolitan area. There's almost no tourism generated by NFL games because they're sold out on a season ticket basis to people who live locally. There's only a handful of tickets available to walk-ons or to people who are just going to go one-off. And so the, the number of visiting fans who come to the city to spend money to see their team is incredibly small. And the, so what, what, what a, all sports teams do is simply reallocate discretionary spending on entertainment and recreation from other things to the stadium. So restaurants in general have less business, bars have less business, theaters have less business, uh, and that's where the money comes for the football team. And then the, the actual employment characteristics of a football team are that almost all of the money is paid to a relatively small number of very high-salaried individuals, players, coaches, and executives. Uh, um, at most, a couple of hundred people have full-time jobs working for the team. And, uh, you know, paying a billion dollars or uh, more or less to employ a couple of hundred people is uh, uh, extravagant. Uh, you know, yes, during game days, uh, four or five-hour shifts go to another few hundred people, but the number of full-time equivalent jobs there is also at most another hundred or so. So it's just not a very effective way to generate economic activity. Uh, it is, uh, you know, it, it's taking money away from businesses that pay people forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, and giving it to somebody who pays their employees millions of dollars a year. Now, how long has this type of arrangement been the custom with major sports teams and cities? You know, the fascinating thing is. I had thought until a few years ago that the battle had been won, that, a, that the fraction of the cost of stadiums that was being subsidized by state and local government was falling. And indeed, they began to lose referenda, uh, like in San Francisco, the subsidizing the, to retain the Giants lost four consecutive ballot measures. In Pasadena, the citizens voted 80 to 20 not to give the Rose Bowl to the NFL. So I had sort of thought it was all over. And then along came Vegas, uh, where they did, you know, they $750 million of direct subsidy plus another $150 million of infrastructure investment for uh, nearly a billion dollars of subsidy for a $2 billion stadium. And that sort of broke the mold and put us back on track of these extensive subsidies. Um, I think right now it's up for grabs. On the one hand, there are lots of cities in financial trouble because of deals like this. Uh, uh, currently, there are eight lawsuits going on in Santa Clara between the city of Santa Clara and the San Francisco 49ers because the rosy financial projections that gave rise to the stadium project didn't prove to be true. Uh, likewise, the city of Glendale, Arizona, almost went into bankruptcy over its sports deals. And similar things have happened in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and things like that. So the, the, these stories that have accumulated about a decade ago of cities getting into deep financial trouble because of their subsidies of sports facilities um, had pretty much put a, a damper on the growth of these subsidies, and, the, and, and they were going in the other way. Then all of a sudden, along comes Vegas and Buffalo, which break the mold. Notice that L.A. has a $5 billion stadium 
privately financed. The only thing they gave away for the stadium in L.A. was to give it tax relief, to give it exemption from the property tax. So the Rams and the Chargers paid for their own stadium at the tune of $5 billion, uh, which is very different than Buffalo paying almost a billion to keep their team. Um, just one more thing. Uh, you have spoken in the past about the impact on the surrounding neighborhoods of new stadiums under the current model of new stadiums where they're effectively, you know, shopping malls with a, a playing field. What does it do to surrounding areas when one of these new major stadiums comes in? It reallocates the discretionary spending part of the economy, the service economy. It reallocates it to the neighborhood of the stadium and away from the rest of the metropolitan area. Uh, so what you what you observe, it, you can actually get detailed uh, data on things like sales taxes and property taxes throughout through uh, the out an entire metropolitan area. And what, if if you go to this model, you know the old model was you, you, you plunked down a stadium and then you surrounded it by acres of parking lot and then you surrounded the parking lot with a freeway so that there was no economic interaction between the stadium and the rest of the neighborhood. That is now passe. The new That's way the to do it Philadelphia is exactly model. As you, yeah, so. exactly. And the Los Angeles model, the, the NFL stadium in Los Angeles. You integrate the stadium into the local economy like it's a, it's a, a, a smooth transition from the concessions of the stadium into the shopping malls. Uh, they're, they're just integrated together. And what that does, of course, is create a little boomlet right there in that neighborhood because the stadium stops being an economic black hole for the, for the, for the, the neighborhood. But it doesn't increase total spending on restaurants in the whole metropolitan area. It doesn't increase total amount of clothing sales in the whole metropolitan area. It just reallocates it to the area around the stadium and away from other places. Pleasure to speak with you. That's Roger Knoll, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Stanford. Thank you so much for your time. Always my pleasure. That about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2213. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.